I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open it to Genesis chapter 45. Book of Genesis chapter 45 as we move in now to the last week of our, of our series, but God meant it for good. Someone asked me this week, how am I? And I said, well, I'm, I'm weary. And they said, well, why are you weary? And I said, we've been looking at suffering for four weeks. And I've preached three times a Sunday for each of those four weeks, and so I'm, I'm weary. And now we come to another week, and here we are again. But I pray that in the midst of examining Joseph's trial and his suffering and his difficulty, that more so we've seen God's character on display. We've seen his faithfulness, we've seen his power, we've seen his care. That we've learned more about God than we have about Joseph. That we've learned more about God than we have focused on our own trial. Because the reality is, is that during this series and leading up to it, our church family has gone through some significant trial. We've experienced loss. Uh, We've experienced uh, within our own church family, some life-altering illness, difficulty. And these are just the things that we know, as Daryl mentioned earlier, in the size of a, of a crowd like this. The desires and the needs of our heart are many, but as is our own difficulty and trial. And so I pray that as we've looked at these truths, these biblical truths, and we've experienced things within our own church family, and our own families, and our own lives, that that these truths have been applicable and helpful and encouraging. And I pray this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table that we will be encouraged, that we will be reminded that while pain and suffering and trial are real, so is the goodness of God. So is the faithfulness of God. So is the sovereignty of God. So is the care and love of our Heavenly Father. Now, what we can't do this morning, because we got up to about verse or, or chapter 42 last week, and if you have a, a Bible that has 50 chapters of Genesis, as it should, um, we're not going to cover eight chapters this morning. Not going to try to. So you got a little bit of homework, because you've got to get caught up between the end of chapter 42 and the beginning of chapter 45. There's some really interesting things that Joseph does, uh, I was going to say with his brother, but to his brothers, because the famine has has begun, and remember the years of plenty where they were storing things up, and he had the plan that God gave him to care for and, and preserve the, the people, and the famine is widespread. Jo- Joseph's family is uh, influenced by it, and so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy food, and they come to Joseph, and they don't recognize him, but he more than recognizes them, and there's these wonderful engagements of Provision and, and some sort of trickery, and it, it's just you just need to read those on your own. And then some things happen after this passage as well. But we started that in week one. When we come to the end of Genesis, Joseph's plan has saved his family, and his father has passed away, and his brothers come back and ask him and make a request of him and says, But God meant it for good. So we're going to find ourselves in chapter 45, sort of in the middle of this last part of the narrative, where 
Joseph can't stand it anymore and has to reveal his identity to his brothers. And so we're going to pick up the narrative in chapter 45, verse 1, and we're going to get through about verse 15 this morning. And the Bible tells us that then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the house of, household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now that may be the understatement of the entirety of the text. <laughs> dismayed carries a fair amount of weight right there. But you've all felt that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like the last time they remember seeing him, the circumstances were quite unpleasant. For Joseph. And if there's any place in this text for Joseph to have a thought like, I've got you where I want you, this might be it, but there's no hint of that. There's no whisper of that sort of thought. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. If, if you think that the, the pit of your stomach could have a basement, that's where they are now. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent you before or sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his household, and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Now hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see. And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that this is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all of my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. This morning I want us to see three themes that are woven throughout this narrative that, that Joseph brings a focus on in this engagement with his brothers. That we've seen evidence of this reality all the way through the text that Joseph seems to have been given the ability to have an eternal perspective on all of these things. Because the only time that we really see any sort of grumbling or request is when Joseph makes the request of the 
the servant of Pharaoh that says, Now when you get restored, please remember me and, and get me out of here. But the rest of the time, we, 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 we can't uh, guess and, and we need to be careful about what we assume by lack and, and the way that we would be responding to these things. What we have from the text is the evidence of one who is responding to very difficult circumstances from an eternal perspective because of a promise that he's been given several chapters before. And so I want to call us to some remembering and to some encouragement about the reality of us being engaged in circumstances where we are dealing with trial, where we are dealing with suffering, and some benefit that can come through the encouragement of look at these things with an eternal perspective. And the first thing that we can see is that we see from this text that having an eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. Having an eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. Look in verse 5. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. There's a, a function word. There's a purpose phrase there. God sent me in order to do this. God sent me here in order to preserve life. Life, there's purpose. Now, there's a, a reality that's being played out here that we need to pay attention to. Joseph remembers and calls his brothers to remember their own action, but puts their action in the, the context of the purposes of God. This is one of the struggles that we have with suffering and with trial and with suffering. Remember in the first week we talked about the fact that, that not all trial or not all suffering is punitive, but all of it is what? Purposeful. That thrills me to no end as you remembered five weeks ago. Purposeful. We have this thought, we have this tendency to drift in our thinking that if I'm enduring some kind of difficulty or some kind of trial... I must have done something wrong that really made God angry for Him to be getting me this way. That's not the case. That's not a biblical understanding of trial. Trial does sometimes come as a disciplinary measure by God. Trial also sometimes comes because we make sinful choices. And we create environments that are difficult for us. But sometimes trial comes because we live in a fallen world, in a broken world. And sometimes trial comes through the sinful, evil actions of others. That's the case here. Joseph said, don't be grieved, don't be angry that you sold me here because God sent me here to preserve life. There are parallel truths that are at play here that really frustrate us. Joseph's brothers acted in an evil way and brought evil action to him. God's purposes are being accomplished. We want everything within us to bring that to some sort of reconciliation. And here's the reconciliation. They're both true. The brothers acted evilly. God's purposes are being fulfilled. But we ask the question, well, why can't God's purposes be fulfilled without the evil action? They weren't. 
if you want to make a blank there for a reason, I don't have a blank to fill. Those things are true. Sometimes people act in evil ways and God's purposes are still accomplished. And when we live with an eternal perspective, it creates a different grid through which we interpret these actions. Because when we, cre- when we interpret or we experience all these things that people do or the, the situation that we live in through the grid of our own hurt, through the grid of our own experience, then all we have is attention to the, the things that are in front of us that seem to want to vie for our attention. But when we press pause and step back and ask this question, what might God be doing in and through this? It changes the way that we approach the things that we encounter. Now, I don't say that with any sort of, sort of naivete that says that's easy or that that is somehow we can muster that up within ourselves. That's why we've talked about the reality of the importance of your intimate, personal walk with Jesus. That apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, none of these things are possible. But we have the ability to look at the experiences in which we find ourselves through the grid of this reality that God is working His purposes to, his, to their completion. So having the eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. But as we continue in the text, the second thing that we see is that when we have this eternal perspective, we not only see that God's purposes are being accomplished, but we also see God's faithfulness on display. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you. See this repetition here. God sent me to preserve life. God sent me here to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Having an eternal perspective allows us to see God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to whom? God's faithfulness to Joseph, certainly. God's been faithful all the way through the text. That's been the one of the reminders, one of those themes that has gone all the way through this narrative. And the Lord was with Joseph. When he was in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with Joseph. When he was in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. When he was in Pharaoh's house, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with him. We see his faithfulness on display in the life of Joseph. Now as we broaden the picture, we see God's faithfulness to Joseph's family to preserve a remnant. But remember, we talked about this a couple different times, that ultimately this is God being faithful to his own word because he made a promise to Abraham way back in the first part of the book of Genesis. And this lineage that will one day end in the coming of the Messiah is, is, is being, if we could use the term, threatened here because of the famine. And so God preserves and God delivers Because of his faithfulness, not only to his people, but more certainly to his promise. God is faithful to keep the word that he gave. And so when you step back from the immediacy of this trial and suffering and think, wow, things were already bad enough and now the people are going through a famine, God has worked beforehand to provide for not only his people and his promise, but also the people around. Because God is faithful. And the same God that was faithful to Joseph, that has been faithful to keep his word, that will be faithful to keep his word all the way through the end of the book and on into eternity, is the same God who is faithfully at work in your place right now. And so when he tells us things like, I will never leave you, or, or, or nor will I forsake you, we can believe that because he is faithful. 
You ever think about this reality? That the only thing that obligates God is His own word. People try to, to create this false understanding about prayer that if I ask it in a certain way that God is somehow obligated to give me what I ask for. The only thing that God is obligated by is His own word. If He said He will do something, He is now obligated by His own character to do that. So the promises that we have of His presence, of His provision, of His faithfulness, of His love, of His loving kindness, of His mercy, of His grace, all of these promises are true In the midst of our suffering. When we're in the midst of trial. And we don't know what to do. The Bible tells us if we ask for wisdom. He will give it. Jesus told his disciples. It's your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away. Then the helper won't come. Who will not only be with you. But he will be in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That brings us. The fruit of the Spirit that bring us empowering to obey and to fulfill what God calls us to do. So when we have an eternal perspective and we come to our time of trial and struggle, we have the ability to recognize that God's purposes are being accomplished. And in these purposes, His faithfulness is on display. And the third thing that we can see in verse 8 As he reminds them again, it was not you who sent me, but rather God. We see through an eternal perspective God's sovereignty on full display. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me, but God. He said it three times, and this is the most clear way. He said, you you think you sent me here. Now, you hated me. Remember, you sold me here, but God sent me here. It was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. Sovereignty on full display. The evil deeds of the brothers under the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is never challenged. It is never altered. It's never weakened. It is an eternal truth. It's one of those those frustrating things that we want to have full understanding of how other people's evil deeds and, and God's sovereignty coexist. Does he, does he cause evil deeds or does he allow evil deeds? Pure little truths. Evil actions exist under God's sovereignty. I'm comforted by one of those truths. I am discomforted by the other. Evil deeds happen and I wish they didn't. But I'm brought comfort that at no time are those evil deeds outside the sovereignty of God. And some people might shake their fist and say, well, then that makes God evil. No. No. There are evil people in that equation, but God is not one. God is good and God is gracious. God is faithful. God is long-suffering with our evil. And He is patient. Because I want to understand who God is by His own self-revelation of Himself through His Word. And these are the things that the Bible declares about who God is. That in His sovereignty, for reasons beyond my understanding, He allows bad things to happen. 
but I am brought to hope by the reality that none of those things are outside of his control. One commentator puts it this way, in insisting that God's sovereignty controls human affairs, Genesis does not deny the full moral responsibility that these people have for their deeds. It affirms both truths simultaneously by emphasizing the deep hurt caused by the brothers' actions, but also God's sovereign control. I have just become more and more and more comfortable with saying, I don't know why, but I do know who. And what I do know about the who endures the why. I don't know why, but I do know who. And when we have an eternal perspective, that perspective creates the grid of seeing first sovereignty, faithfulness, and purpose and then puts our experience under that instead of turning that on its top. That I somehow come to an understanding or a misunderstanding about sovereignty, faithfulness, and purpose through the grid of my own human experience. That's, that's not accurate. Because our feelings, believe it or not, will lie to us. I know that's hard to believe. But there's a great phrase that I've learned in my uh, what seems like never-ending desire to play better golf, that feel isn't real. If you've ever played golf or attempted to play golf, you may feel like you have a very good swing, and then you see a video recording of it, and you think, that looks like a full-body dry heave. <laughs> like, there's no reason that should feel good, and your teacher says, exactly, because feel isn't Reels like, well, you told me to do these things, and it feels like I'm doing all of them. And they say, well, the video says you're doing none of them. <laughs> so I'm going to look at the evidence instead of what you feel. Feelings will often scream the loudest and want the most attention. But truth creates the proper understanding. Now, we have feelings. God gave us feelings, but they were never intended to lead. When we feel hurt, we feel hurt. I'm not asking you to dismiss what you feel. I'm just asking you to not let it drive. When we let feelings and emotions steer our lives, we're asking them and entrusting them to do something they were never ever designed to do. We've got to be submitted to truth. Because when we are dealing with trial and suffering, very often we feel alone, we feel isolated. The reality is God said, I'm with you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So we're not alone. He's not only with us, but he's also given us people. He's given us this thing called the church for people to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We have God, we have one another. We just sometimes separate ourselves from both of those things because feelings tell us to. I'm not saying don't feel, but what I'm saying is don't let them rule. They were never intended to. Because what we have here is, in this text, is Joseph doing just that. We don't have any indication from the text that he wanted to get him. When they realized who he was and they were dismayed, 
He said, don't be angry. Don't grieve yourself over the fact that you sent me here. God was at work. And him having an eternal perspective allowed him and helped him to be able to forgive. The word forgiveness is not in this text anywhere, but the, the portrait that is painted by Joseph's actions declare loud forgiveness. He recognizes what they did was evil. He didn't dismiss it. He recognized it. But what he did was he didn't hold it against them because he's looking at it from an eternal perspective of saying, what you did was evil, but God was at work. What you did was evil, but God's bigger. And he seems to bring forgiveness to them. And as forgiveness is offered... This eternal perspective allows these relationships to be restored. Look at the last verse. We've seen how through this part of the text, Joseph says, don't grieve yourself, God's at work. You didn't send me here, God sent me here. Look at this engagement in, the last, in verses 14 and 15. That, that when After this call for Joseph to send his brothers back to bring their father, it says that Benjamin... Fell on, their, fell on one another's necks and they wept. And it says that he kissed his brothers. That's this picture of receiving them unto himself. And look at the last phrase. And after all this, his brothers talked with him. Do you remember back in chapter 37? The Bible says that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other brothers and they hated him for it. They hated him to the point where they could not even speak to him on friendly terms. Jump ahead in the bit, uh, a bit in the narrative. And because Joseph brings an eternal perspective to this, to see God's purpose, to see God's faithfulness, to see God's sovereignty. He brings forgiveness and restoration to the point now that they are able to converse with one another. Not only has God been faithful to, to rescue and deliver the remnant, but he also restores relationship. And then in about five chapters, when Joseph's father dies, the brothers are still a bit unsure. And say, now that, now that dad's out of the way, uh, you, you may you know, want to... Remember a little bit more aggressively what we did to you back there. So, you know, God, the dad told us to, for, you to take care, for you to take care of us. And, and that's where we started this whole thing. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God not only meant for good here, but God meant for good through the rest of the narrative that leads up to the coming of the Messiah. He underwent trial, difficulty, persecution, crucifixion. All in God's purpose. All in God's faithfulness. All under God's sovereignty. That he would bring us forgiveness. And that our relationship with God would be restored. Which is what we celebrate today when we come to the table. And so as we move from this series, we don't move from the character of God that is on full display. But as we come to the table this morning, we come with our 
place of ease or our place of suffering. We come under His sovereign hand. We come in the reality of His purposes being worked out in our life and us experiencing His faithfulness over and over and over again. And all of those being ultimately on display through the giving of His own Son. So let me invite us to pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. Those folks who are going to be helping us this morning are already moving into place. Pastor Darrell is going to come and lead you through that time. But let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and let's enter into a season and a posture of prayer as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.